And welcome back to Pushing the A. My name is Will. I'll be your host for today. We're going to do something a little different today than we've been doing previously. We're going to run through all of period four, a midnight study sesh ahead of Maureen's period four test tomorrow. Happy Halloween, everyone. So it's going to be a little different. Instead of just going through the flashcards for each chapter, I've picked out the best of the best. I have a timeline in front of me, I have all the note cards, I have names and places, and of course, the trusty air horn effect. Shout out to YouTube. And we're just going to go, and I'm going to try and fit it all into 15 minutes, and if I don't, it'll just be disappointing. But, you know what? Here's hoping we can do it, and at the end we're going to have a two-minute lightning round, where I'm going to try and do a Sporkle quiz on APUS. I've never seen it before. I'll drop a link in the description if you want to follow along with it, but thought it might be fun to end the show. All right, we ready? Let's do it. Let's start this timer in three, two, one, go. Okay, so we start off in 1800 where we have an election. The Federalists essentially dead because of the Alien Sedition Act. They've made a lot of enemies. They try and malign Thomas Jefferson. They've raised a lot of funds to tax the, from tax. They've raised a lot of funds from taxing the United States so they can go fight a war with France, which never happens. The public hates them. Uh, so they just go after Thomas Jefferson. They try and turn the clergy against him. It doesn't matter if Jefferson wins with uh, mainly the South and the West and his vice presidential candidate, Aaron Burr, gets him New York. Um, some weird technicality means that they tie. The House of Representatives picks Jefferson over Burr. Uh, the Federalists, however, are not dead yet. Uh, John Madison stays up until midnight or like 1 a.m. or something absurd on his last night in the presidency. And by John Madison, of course, I mean John Adams uh, stayed up on midnight until his, until midnight on the last night of his presidency to appoint about 60 new Federalist judges, which he thinks will hold up the Federalist view of the country. This is a Judiciary Act of 1801. They're all really anti-Thomas Jefferson. The Democratic Republicans, Jefferson's party, they repeal this, and they're trying to take some of the judges off the court. They can't get rid of John Marshall, who's the big fish. Uh, they do try and get rid of this guy, Marbury, um, and he sues, uh, and then uh, that goes to Marshall's court. Marshall says, uh, you shouldn't have been removed from the court, but the law that put you there in the first place was bad. So on that reasoning, um, you're off the court, but it does establish this precedent of judicial review, which means that the Supreme Court is the number one rule, the number one word on what's constitutional, what's not, and it sets up the next really forever of United States history. That is where most of our laws come from today. The year is 1803. Um, Napoleon has his hands really full in Europe. We're flying to Europe real quick. Napoleon has his hands really full in Europe. He's lost the Haitian Revolution. Uh, the British now have Canada, which they had. They don't need this food that they're producing in North America. Um, the U.S. Uh, really wants the Mississippi, the Mississippi River uh, to use for trade. Um, so they send a few guys to work out a deal. We're going to buy all the land east of New Orleans for $10 million, says President Thomas Jefferson, who was elected in the election of 1800, which we never acknowledged. 
Um, so then the French say, hey, how about all of Louisiana for $15 million? Um, Jefferson doesn't really know what to think. He's like, yeah, I guess I technically have the right to do this. Um, and the, or I don't really technically have the right to do this in the Constitution, but the country needs it. So he does it on the basis of this is a foreign treaty. Okay, in the year 1804 or something, the Louisiana Purchase has gone through. Aaron Burr is wondering, can the U.S. control such a really big frickin' area of land? He thinks no. He asks New York and New England to secede. Um, and Hamilton exposes him. Aaron Burr goes into a duel with him. Okay, Aaron Burr has gone into a duel with Alexander Hamilton. He kills Hamilton with Hamilton. The Federalists, all but John Marshall at least, die. 1807, industries are really clamoring for some protection. Um, they get it in the Embargo of embargo Act of 1807. Uh, the other context behind this is that the Chesapeake Affair has just happened where uh, the British soldiers continue to ask for uh, things from American boats. They had four prisoners. The Americans had four prisoners the British wanted on their boats. The Americans, uh, the British said to the Americans, please give us the prisoners. The Americans say, no, absolutely not. And they open fire. This is a Chesapeake affair. Thomas Jefferson could have gone to war. Um, the other thing though that has also happened is that London has issued the orders in council, uh, which basically say, if you're gonna take anything to France, it has to go through British ports. The French have said, if you go to British ports, we will capture your ship. Um, Thomas Jefferson says, we're going to screw both of you guys. We're just going to do things ourselves. Um, and he says, no trade with anyone. Um, the economy suffers way before either side notices because both are way too independent and not reliant on the U.S. whatsoever and also really determined. And everyone hates it. It does spark a bunch of illegal trade on the Canadian border. Hey. Um, 1808, Thomas Jefferson, two terms, says, I'm tired and leaves. And in the election of 1808, his best buddy, James Madison, is elected into office. Uh, he comes in with a lot of problems. Conflict in Europe is on the rise. Congress has repealed the Non-Intercourse Act. That's what the embargo is, I believe. The Non-Intercourse Act. Google, tell me what the Non-Intercourse Act is. Yeah, that's... Uh, Google, sorry. They replaced the embargo with the Non-Intercourse Act. Um, and yes, they repealed the embargo with the Non-Intercourse Act in 1809. In 1811, they repealed the Non-Intercourse Act with Macon's Bill Number Two, which says we will do free trade. But if either British or the, the British or the French close off themselves to us, um, then we will stop trading, which everyone does at first. Napoleon says, "Hey, if London stops, we'll stop too." John Madison, and by John, I mean James, takes the bait. The British don't stop. Americans have to cut off trade with the British. So there goes any hope of British-American reconciliation. It comes to that. The South and the West have uh, elected these new representatives to the House uh, who are really hungry for war. They really, really, really want to go to war with anyone. They're called the War Hawks for that reason. Uh, Tecumseh, who is um, a Native American out in the Midwest, says we need to stop U.S. expansion, and he unifies all the tribes east of the Mississippi. Uh, the War Hawks are wondering if the British are funding. Uh, and then William Henry Harrison leads an army onto the area that Tecumseh holds. Um, Tecumseh's buddy, the Prophet, uh, attacks them. The Shawnees are routed uh, at the Battle of Tippecanoe. Uh, Tecumseh goes and allies with the British, um, and when he eventually dies, so do the dreams of any Pan-Indian alliance.
So Jay's Treaty, way back from like 1799 or whatever, uh, it left a lot of failures. The British were still in the United States, for instance. That was a big problem. A lot of things that the United States really needed to fix were unfixed. Um, so with all of that happening, all those failures, more um, is appearing inevitable with the Indians and the British are on their side. The Warhawks are pushing it. The Republican experiments, the confidence within that is way down. Uh, so Madison says it's time to assert our rights. It's time to go to war. And Congress says, hell yeah. So in June 18, 12, the South and the West say yes, enough to overpower the Northeast. Who's like, why are we going to war? We don't want new Canadian colonies for no apparent reason. Uh, that's the start of the War of 1812. Um, so in the War of 1812, a couple key places, the Great Lakes, Lake Champlain, both of which the U.S. gets wins at. They also go to the Chesapeake. They go to D.C. They burn the Capitol uh, and the White House. Baltimore holds up for some reason. Then they go to New Orleans, and Andrew Jackson holds them off at the Battle of New Orleans. Jackson becomes a national hero, as does William Henry Harrison. The Royal Navy blockades the U.S. The economy is crippled. But wait, there's already been a treaty. It's the Treaty of Ghent. Thank you to Tsar Alex I, who wanted to keep his allies, the British, strong. In 1812, he'd already proposed one. In 1814, five Americans go to Ghent. Uh, the British want um, an Indian buffer state and the Great Lakes in Maine, uh, and then they lose all these key battles, and they say, we're going to take what we can get and get out of here and focus on the Congress of Vienna. So the Treaty of Ghent, which is more of an armistice, is passed on Christmas Eve, uh, and that's really the end of any old world presence in North America that's significant. So as a function of uh, a war, uh, a win in the War of 1812, nationalism is way up. There's a lot more manufacturing. There are these new factories until the British make their goods really cheap. The, industri the industries who are making the goods in America want protection. They get it with a tariff of 1816, which is the first of its kind. It's 20 to 25% on imports. Henry Clay is like, this works really well. Henry Clay being the future Speaker of the House, and he comes up with the American system. Strong bank for credit uh, and money from the tariff uh, can fund rivers and canals for to transport food and raw materials from the South and the West. And then the Northeast can exchange products for manufactured products for said raw materials. Era of good feelings, the Democratic Republicans party of Jefferson and Madison in 1816 nominate James Monroe, who beats the living daylights out of the final Federalist in a landslide. That's in 1816. He goes on this goodwill tour. Things are great. Checks out the military. National pride. Era of good feelings is what they call it because the feelings are good. Um, then the tariff and the bank and the improvements are not really working um, more specifically, there's this over-speculation on frontier lands. The Bank of the United States is kind of gambling on loans. And suddenly, we have the Panic of 1819, which leads to deflation, bankruptcy, unemployment. It is the first major economic uh, panic since George Washington. Nationalism goes down, and the poorer classes are pissed off. Uh, in the Anglo-American Convention, uh, the U.S. got Oregon. That's basically it. In 1819, after... Uh, John Quincy Adams, who is the Secretary of State for <coughs> Monroe, uh, really pushes it. Uh, the United States gets Florida in exchange for Spain's rights to Texas. That'll change. There's this question between the South and the North. Who's going to control the West? Moreover, are these states going to be slave states or not? Missouri wants to be in. They are supposed to not be a slave state, but they want to bring slaves. So in the House, this thing called the Talmadge Amendment is proposed, um, where it's a super overreaction. It's like, uh, you cannot bring in any slaves, and if you are a child of a slave, congratulations, you are free. It's stopped. Um, 
In the Senate, which is 50-50 split between slave and non-slave states, people are worried about this idea of a peculiar institution in which Congress could potentially stop, I don't know, slavery in maybe the South that they can do it in Missouri. Uh, slavery is in the national eye for the first time in a while. Um, House of Representatives comes up with the Missouri Compromise, which is basically we're going to admit Maine and Missouri, but there will be no slavery north of Missouri's southern border, though, and it lasts for 34 years. And also, if the Panic of 1819 hadn't killed off the air of good feelings, that's really the last nail in the coffin. Okay, 1824, the final old-style election ends in a four-way tie between John Quincy, Adam, Hen John Quincy Adams, Henry Clay, William Henry Crawford, and Andrew Jackson. The House has to choose. William Henry Crawford has a stroke. Kind of knocks him out of the running. Um, Henry Clay's a speaker, so he also doesn't really get to choose because it would not really look good if you chose yourself to be the president. So it's really between Adams and Jackson. Uh, Clay hates Jackson, so he picks Adams, and coincidentally gets the Secretary of State, which Adams supporters call the corrupt bargain. Uh, Andrew Jackson supporters cannot believe it, uh, and it is the end of really ever the president being chosen behind closed doors except for the year 2000. Um... Adams wins, Jackson immediately starts campaigning again, and it becomes the Democratic-Republicans split into National Republicans, Party of Adams versus the Democratic-Republicans, Party of Jackson. It's frontiersmen versus aristocrat. It's people who want things in the White House versus people who don't. Jackson wins the election in 1828 with the West, the South, and the Middle States, and the Old Northwest is the dividing line. Adams gets the Northeast, and when they recalibrate the Electoral College to reflect the popular uh, vote, or the population, rather, Jackson wins in a landslide on both fronts. Jackson, who is this weird guy who started in North Carolina as an orphan, then a judge, and then went to Congress, and the first president from the West, uh, takes a bunch of his friends to the inauguration where they all get in a fight. Um, he also has this thing called the spoil system, where basically if you supported him, you get to work in the White House, which is on the concept of we need new blood. There hasn't been a lot of turnover in the White House, which is true. There hasn't. But this is the wrong way to do it. So, um, it does set this precedent of if you stick with your party, then you get rewarded. So, while Jackson is in office, the U.S. industry really wants more of a protective tariff. The New Englanders and the Middle States love it. Um, it sort of messes with exports, though. Uh, so, Andrew Jackson says, okay, to get rid of this, we're going to pass a really high tariff and shut it all down. And then he accidentally passes it. The Southerners, uh, everything's bad in the South already. Slavery... There's worries about that. They need a scapegoat. The economy's bad, so they blame this tariff. They call it the Tariff of Abominations. John C. Calhoun, not James Calhoun, but John C. Calhoun, uh, says this is unconstitutional uh, in South Carolina, and therefore, because it's unconstitutional, we, as South Carolina, can declare it null and void, and thus the nullies of South Carolina are born. There are two minutes and 11 seconds left on the timer. I am not liking the odds. Uh, unionists that remain in the South Carolina legislature say, no, actually, we're not going to get rid of it. They blocked the movement until 1832, prompting a nullification crisis when, until the nullies, uh, when more seats are able to repeal it immediately. Um, Andrew Jackson cannot believe it. He sends the Navy and the military in uh, South Carolina issues. A proclamation, pro counter-proclamations are issued. Henry Clay, who enjoys this idea of maybe being a national hero while the guy he hates is in office, um, comes up with the compromise where it'll go down 10%. The tariff will go down 10% by 1842 to 1833 levels. Um, this whole business, by the way, was happening sometime in the 18, early 1830s. Um, and, but if a state ever denies to uh, 
pay for a tariff. Again, the military can be used. Alright, Jackson thinks the U.S. is expanding, rightfully so. Unrightfully so, he also thinks that the natives should be kicked out of their spot. They've been trying to Christianize them. The five civilized tribes of Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Creeks, the Cherokees, and the Seminoles. Chickasaw, not the Cherokees twice, um, have been sort of sort of adapted to westerny culture stuff. That's the wrong word for it, but I'll move on. Um, one thing leads to another, uh, and Jackson Lee, and it leads to the Indian Removal Act, where they're going to transplant all of the Indians east of the Mississippi to the west, at least this really long march called the Trail of Tears, where crazy amounts of indigenous people die. It's horrible. It's one of the worst things that, it's the worst thing Jackson ever did. However, it's not the thing at the time they thought was the worst. Um, instead, Andrew Jackson has this distrust in big business. Uh, he thinks the bank is way overstepping its lines. They're not issuing paper money. They have way too much power. They're acting like the government. So Clay and Webster, Daniel Webster, bring up the Bank of the U.S. as an issue. Um, and they try to ram a new charter through Congress and force Jackson to either alienate his followers or people on the East. Oh, that was 15 minutes. Bummer. All right, let's see if we can get it done in another five. All right. I think we can get it done in five, I believe, in me. All right, timer's restarted for five. Um... Either alienate his followers or people on the East. However, what they don't realize is that the East is no longer the majority, and Jackson doesn't care if he alienates them, so he vetoes it, deems it unconstitutional. And moreover, it's not unconstitutional because, like some lawyer said it was, it's because he, he said it was, which gives the executive branch way more power than it ever had before. Okay, so, New Bank of the U.S. Charter did not go through. Andrew Jackson versus Henry Clay in 1832, that is the election. Also, this group called the Anti-Masonic Masonic Order has come in. Uh, Jackson is a Mason. It's this group of people. It's like a club. It's a, it's a cool club. Um, and it's all it's an election all about moral and religious reforms. Jackson says, we want a small government. Um, it's the first election with national conventions and party platforms. Uh, Henry Clay gets a lot of Bank of the United States money. Um, pays newspapers to malign Jackson, and Jackson wins anyways with the South, the West, Pennsylvania, and New York by over 100,000 votes, which was a fair amount at that time, today less so. Um, the Bank of the United States' is charter does not expire until 1836. Andrew Jackson says, I have a mandate. I'm going to end it now. The president of the bank, Biddle, is trying to keep it alive. Uh, Jackson says, screw it. Um, I'm going to remove the federal funds out of it, the federal deposits takes him three treasury secretaries hired and fired to do it, but those funds are withdrawn, forcing Biddle to call back his loans, leading to a financial crisis. Banks are done in. It's this financial vacuum is left. There's a cycle of booms and busts. There are surplus funds um, that are, have been taken out of the Bank of the United States, and those are funneled into state banks that are pro under Jackson, aka the pet banks. Some of those are wildcat banks, which do whatever the hell they want. That's a trademark. Um, they flood the market with paper money, and the currency becomes so unreliable that Jackson has issued a species circular, which basically says you cannot buy land unless it is with metal money, which is never a good sign. In the 1830s, there was this rise to a new party. Uh, the, Demo the Democratic Republicans became the Democrats, and the opponents of Jackson became the Whigs. They call him King Andrew. They hate him with a burning passion. And it's Clay and Webster and Calhoun, and they censure him over his really irresponsible removing of federal deposits for the Bank of the United States. Um, they are progressive conservatives in that they are a return to the status quo of large, expansive government of Hamilton and Washington, um, but 
progressive in that they wanted to expand the government. Uh, the anti-Masons, the Nullies, the American system supporters, everyone who hates Jackson join in with them. Um, they really believe in the act of government. They want reforms. They want to improve the infrastructure instead of expanding further west. They believe in the market economy uh, and the common man, and they really claim that the Democrats are super corrupt. Um, in 1836, Jackson rams Martin Van Buren into the Democratic nomination. The Whigs can't figure out anyone to nominate, despite William Henry Harrison standing there being quite an obvious choice. They hope for a split vote. Uh, the House of Representatives would hope, hypothetically choose a Whig. It doesn't happen. Van Buren wins the popular by a bit and the electoral by a lot. It is the first president born past 1776, and he inherits a crap ton of problems from Andrew Jackson, such as Texas expansion, Canadian rebellion, and economic depression. Things are bad. Um, Overspeculation, wildcat banks, Western infrastructure problems, the bank or the species circular, the failure of wheat, the failure of Great Britain banks uh, who call in their loans all come down crashing into the panic of 1837. Um, where banks, including those pet banks with government funds, collapse, public land sales go down, commodities go down, factories lose a lot of traction. The Whigs say it's time for more credit uh, and a better tariff. Martin Van Buren comes up with the divorce bill, which basically says the U.S. money is going to be out of the banks, so it is not affected by stuff like this, and the Treasury will be independent to get money out. Um, it is passed, repealed, and then passed again. In 1840, Martin Van Buren is reluctantly renominated. One minute left. The Whigs finally unite behind Hen William Henry Harrison because they're not stupid this time. The people blame the Democratic Republicans for their problems. Nobody knows what the Whigs or Harrison stands for. They don't care because he's an old farmer in a log cabin who would be content with a glass of apple cider, the complete opposite of the aristocratic Democrats. Um, he wins the popular by a little, electoral by a lot. And it is a choose, and it is an economic vision chosen of expansionism over states' rights and limited government influence, and that populism is in, aristocracy is out. Webster could have been a president, could have been a good president, too aristocratic to do the job, and we finally have a legitimate two-party system. Uh, the Federalists were trash, so it wasn't really a two-party system. Uh, it's two Republicanist parties. The Democrats are for states and individual liberties, and the Whigs are thinks that society and government are the means to get to the ends of general improvement. It's restraint versus involvement, rights versus reform. They're very similar, though. That was the timer for five minutes. I'm going to finish this note because this is the last one. Um... There's a lot of intra-party inside of the party, horse trading. It's not geographical. The parties aren't drawn to geographical lines, so they compromise on slavery for the time being. And also, they both say a lot of the same stuff because they want to appeal to the masses. All right, real quick, the timer for that is over, but I'm going to go through a few names and things that you should know, or that I should know at least, um, from chapter 14 and 15. Um, immigration, there's a ton of it mainly the German and the Irish, rise in anti-Catholic sentiment, rise in new Catholic schools, and rise in the Know Nothing Party, uh, who post these awful disclosures and burn a bunch of Catholic churches. The Irish have the last laugh as they take over politics and the police department, specifically New York and Tammany Hall. Um, German crop failures and ultra-conservatism lead to new German immigrants who are scattered, mainly in Wisconsin. Um, they're lower on the influence level because they're isolationist and well-spread. In terms of transport, 1790, the first turnpike. It turns. There are pikes and it turns. That's the toll. Um, there's a turnpike explosion. The National Road is built Baltimore to St. Louis in 1811. 
Robert Fulton, it was really Samuel Morey, builds the first steamboat, the Claremont, who makes it from New York City to Albany in a minuscule 132 hours. This makes rivers two-way. You can go five miles an hour going upstream on a river now, which isn't nothing. The capacity is doubled. The Mississippi is fully used. There are thousands of boats. Uh, and the Great Lakes and Chicago and Cleveland and Detroit get a huge boost. Um, potato and shipping costs go down. And New England farmers, as well as farmers from Europe, are displaced. George Clinton builds the Erie Canal to connect the New York area to the Midwest. Uh, shipping prices go down. The value of the land on the canal goes up. New cities and farming pop up. National economy is trumping the local. Okay, so I just realized um, having to pause and restart this because Anchor makes you record in five-minute intervals that I probably am not going to go through all of this culture and etc. stuff, I think. I hit the important stuff with the immigration, and you can get the rest of the factory and etc. stuff later on. So, I am going to find an A push period for Sporkle. The other ones were not working, but we'll see if this one does. Um, Alright, this could be interesting. Um, yeah, let's try it. Alright. I'm going to drop the link here. Um, by the way, if you want to listen to the rest of the culture and art portion of the um, podcast, I will turn those into a separate episode, and that will just be art and culture continued. And I'm sorry about the weird way this turned out. All right. Can you name the A-Push time period for review? This is giving me 10 minutes. I do not think I'm going to need 10 minutes, and if I do, if I need more than two minutes, um, something's gone wrong. So, two-minute timer starts now. Let's give it a whirl. Play quiz. Who was known as the Pathfinder? Lewis? Clark? I don't know. Who led a slave rebellion after seeing a solar eclipse? Who led a slave rebellion after seeing a solar eclipse? Um, if this was an American pageant, I certainly didn't see it. Um, gonna skip that one. Who wrote a treatise, a treatise on domestic economy in 1841? Um, Henry Clay. No. Skipping that. <laughs> Ralph Waldo Emerson let what movement? Unitary. Unit, unitarianism. Nope. Um, transcendentalism. Heck yeah. Got it. Who began the surrogate writer system? Don't know. What was known as a peculiar institution? Missouri Compromise. No. Uh, Talmadge Amendment? Okay, I know the all right, the Jesus the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is better known as what church? Um, I don't know if I covered this in the last one. I think I did. Uh, Mormons, yes. Who led the Mormons to Utah? Brigham Young. Heck yeah. Which nation got independence in eighteen twenty one? Eighteen twenty one. Which nation got independence in eighteen twenty one? Mexico? Yes. Which president was born in Waxhaws? I'm going to guess our good buddy Andrew Jackson. All right. Who began the circuit rider system? Um, who's known as a Pathfinder? See, if I could remember the names of... Oh, maybe it's Sacagawea? If I could spell Sacagawea.
if anyone gets this. All right, that's the timer. Let's see, give up. Who's on the Pathfinder? John Fermont, never heard of him. Who led a slave rebellion after seeing a solar eclipse? Turner, who wrote a treatise on domestic economy in 1841. Catherine Beecher, who began the circuit writer system? Francis Asbury, <laughs> nice. What was known as a peculiar institution? Slavery, oh, that's interesting. And then the rest I got right. All right, that concludes the period four review podcast. Thank you so much for listening to hopefully all of the other ones, or not hopefully all the other ones. For your sake, I hope you didn't. It's a long time to listen to anything, much less me talking. Um, So that's it for period four. Good luck on the test tomorrow.